Hey everybody, this is Mike Joseph, host of the Detoxicity Podcast. Before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you, please subscribe, rate, and comment on this podcast wherever you're listening to it. You can find me on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy and on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph. Reach out via DM with comments, or if you know someone who'd be good to feature on an episode, or if you yourself would like to be interviewed, you can also email me for that. I am at DetoxPod at gmail.com. Finally, just want to remind everybody to wear a mask and social distance. Please be kind to others and be kind to yourselves. Thanks for listening, and I hope you and yours stay and remain safe and healthy. In this episode of Detoxicity, I am talking to Blaze Mancias. Blaze uh, hails from the San Francisco Bay Area, currently lives in New York City. You can find him at blazecomedy.com. He is a comedian, duh, and an actor, and currently hosts the podcast Let's Get Lit, which, you know... His name is Blaze. The podcast is called Let's Get Lit. You think we were talking about some fragrant greenery here, but we're not. Blaze is his real name, as you'll find out. And Let's Get Lit features some of Blaze's comedian friends reading chapters from H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Not what you thought, is it? Anyway, in our episode, me and Blaze uh, talk about the origins of his unique name. Uh, We talk about uh, gentrification in both San Francisco and New York. Uh, we talk about his Mexican-American origins, and we talk about the difference between West Coast and East Coast audiences. So much more. Blaze is a fantastic guy. Uh, have a listen to our conversation. Hi, I'm Blaze Muncius. If you don't know me, if you've never heard of me, I'm an actor and comedian, and I live in New York City. I make podcasts. I host comedy shows. I make silly videos. I do things like that. If you want to follow things I do, you could check me out at Blaze Mancius, M-A-N-C-I-L-L-A-S, anywhere, Blaze Mancius. That's a little bit about me. That is, that is a little bit about you. First question is, is your real name Blaze? It's my real middle name. My, my first name is Philip a- Andrew with a hyphen in the middle. It oh, wow. It co- doesn't even come out of my mouth naturally because I say <laughs> it so r- rarely. But it's named after my two great uncles, Felipe and Andres, which was my father's idea. And then my parents found Blaze in the baby name book in the 80s and thought it was cool. But my dad really wanted my family name first. So despite Philip Andrew being my first name, I've never gone by it my entire life. They've always called me Blaze because it was shorter and just easier. Also, like bummer that they named me philip andrew and not felipe andres but my dad is mexican and he dealt with a lot of racism so he didn't want to put, set me back so sure sure i get that <laughs> so that's the story of my name <laughs> i just you know whenever i i speak to you or i reach out to you online i'm always just like that's got to be related to like smoking weed or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> i'm not against marijuana but i i sort of came to it very late in life it's not like a nickname that i've had so yeah gotcha all right. What? Well, first of all, where did you grow up? I, I grew up in the Bay Area, in San Jose specifically, like heart of Silicon Valley, I guess people consider it now. But yeah, I grew up in the Bay Area, but I've been in New York City for 11 years this past August. Oh, so you're officially a New Yorker. It's nice of you to say that, being that you are a native New Yorker. I feel like uh, blessed by you now. Thank you. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, I feel like after 10, 10 years is sort of the the point when you transition from like a dilettante to a a full grown, you know, full blown New Yorker. A dilettante. I like that. You know, somebody who's just like, Oh, you know, I'll sample New York for a short time and then go back to where I came from or go somewhere else. Yeah. Those people are like, I want to do my twenties in New York. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Those are all the people who have gone home since the pandemic started. It's true. So I, you know, I've been to the Bay Area uh, once, maybe twice. I don't remember at this point. What was it like growing up in, in, on the West Coast in California? Sure. Can I ask when the last time you went to the Bay Area was so I have a frame of reference of what Bay Area you know? To, so my buddy Garrett, who actually did, I think, my second episode of this, used to live in Gilroy. Uh-huh, yeah. Yes. And, my cousins uh, live there. Oh, right on. And I, I went out to visit him in 2008, 2009. Oh. So it's been about 10 years. Okay. Yeah, you know, growing up in the Bay Area, I thought, I think it's a fine place to grow up, especially you're close to so much. You got the beaches, you got the mountains, you got everything. You know, I grew up in a very, like, I guess, liberal household, you know, like very, you know, I don't know, like, trying to paint a picture, like, you know, grand, elementary school, I had a, a gay pr- principal who's like openly gay. Oh, wow. And that, that's, I thought that's pretty cool. Like, that's the early 90s. That's not really like a big thing. Yeah, it's cool growing up in the Bay. It's, it's really changed a lot, unfortunately, in the past like 10, 20 years. You know, it, all the tech that's been exploding out there. I mean, it was exploding in the 80s and 90s, but it's exploded in a totally different way that like anybody who doesn't make a shit ton of money is getting forced out of the Bay Area, including family members of mine. They're looking at cities that are further and further away. It's changed a lot, and it's it's really a bummer. And I have to say, I didn't grow up in San Francisco. My parents live in San Francisco now. They moved about 15 years ago into the city. But San Francisco always used to be this town that like embraced its uh, counterculture or its freaks or its weirdos or its sure. artists or its you know LGBTQ community. Whoever you are, they embrace those that are different. And unfortunately, because of like prices of, of real estate in San Francisco and because I'm not sure if you're familiar with like these tech buses like Google and Apple. I've heard these, of like, those because yeah, I, so- I had a friend who worked for Google that moved out there. Yeah, so the, what it means is like, you know, Google, Facebook, they have their campuses outside, a lot of big campuses outside of San Francisco, but they provide free transport to and from work to their employees in uh, the form of these luxury buses. And what that means is now all these techies who might live in the suburbs close to their work are now like, I want to live in the city because they're getting free public transit to and from work. Sure. And so everybody that lived in the city that, that, was of lower income is getting forced out. It's it's really tough. And it's sad to see because I feel like the city is like losing its character. And I think you've probably seen a lot of that here in New York too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean that it I was thinking as you were saying that that pretty much sounds like New York City in the last 15 years. Although New York City thankfully still has plenty of character. I'd agree. It's, it's definitely a I mean you I look at it two ways. One New York City as a whole is a much safer place to live. And I, New York City in the 80s and, you know, through like 2004, 2005 was not the most safe of environments to live in. But I think kind of the danger of it is part of what gave it character. Mm. And that danger is, and and some of it is gentrification, some of it is technology. Sure. But uh, it is, it is a different situation. It's funny, I was seeing someone for a while who actually moved from Oakland to Brooklyn because it was cheaper. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, there's just so f- few housing out there. I mean, New York is super expensive too, but there's just so many apartments and public transit in New York City is so great that you can 
live a little bit further away and still not be like totally out of it. But San Francisco public transit's not great. So it's like really it's so like finite amount of places to live. So it's, it's really tough out there. I'm, right. I'm grateful for growing up out there. It was a wonderful place to live, but I'm, I'm very much happy to be here. I have no intention, I'll tell you, of ever moving back to the Bay Area, ever. This is recorded <laughs> for posterity, Blake. <laughs> <laughs> go I'm, back to play this on a loop. Yeah, I love visiting my family out there. They're all wonderful, but I don't want to move there. I'm very happy here. I love performing here way more. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I, I just <laughs> we can love, edit that out. I love New York audiences so much. So was the reason that you moved out to New York City performing performance related? Or? Sort of, yeah. I, I, I did my undergrad, interestingly enough, in Hawaii. And it was there that I sort of discovered the performing arts and started acting because I was a bio major and I switched to broadcast journalism because my school didn't have a acting major so i was like that's close and i got really <laughs> sure into, yeah i got really into theater and i did some summer programs i did one in san francisco i did one in new york and i was like i think i want to go to grad school because i felt like i had just started this acting thing and i didn't really have any training uh, and i got accepted to columbia and that's that was what brought me to the city in 2009 was to get an mfa in in acting how does one I guess to switch from biology to <laughs> broadcast journalism is, is kind of weird. Totally. And also like to discover that you want to be a performer, I guess, I mean, obviously not later in life, but you weren't like a kid going to auditions and stuff like that. Like other, you know, other people I know and people that I've, I've interviewed, what was it that put that spark in you that said, I want to be some kind of performer? Well, yeah, I, I went to my school, I was studying bio, and a friend of mine who was in a play, like, coaxed, he was like, I can't do the play anymore, I got too many commitments, but I think you would be great for it. And I was like, I don't, I've never done this before. He coaxed me to go to a, a rehearsal, I read some lines, the director's like, yeah, you're fine, you want to do this? And I was like, if you could work around, like, my cross country and soccer practices, then I'll do it. I did one play, it was fun. I did another musical, it was fun. And then I did a third play, I think that was my sophomore year. And I was like, I think I wanna like do this. I, I don't know, it was fun, it was exciting, it was different, it was new. I had some really awesome professors who like saw something in me because I went to a very small school that had no sort of basis for performing arts. So there was really like three dudes that like ran it. And I don't know, it. It was exciting to me. And honestly, discovering the performing arts in Hawaii is a wonderful place to get into the performing arts because the culture is so rich with performance. And there are so many just natural talents in, on that, in that whole state, whether that be dancing or singing. And some of the theater productions I've seen in Hawaii are some of the best. They're called community theater, but it's way more professional than anything you might see in the mainland or something like that. So... I don't know, it was a really exciting time. I was sort of like starting out as like a, a big fish in a small pond, it felt like. I had a lot of support. It's just, it's, Hawaii is a very special place and it has a very special place in my heart because I felt like I did my first bit of like growing up there. I learned, I like learned this about myself. I was like, oh, maybe I perform. And that was something I just never did. I was kind of like a more shy guy. Right, I, you gotta be an extrovert if you're going to be a performer <laughs> yeah yeah a little bit right <laughs> you can't you can't act like hidden in your your sleeve like kind of whispering at the audience yeah um 
I'm great. And I'm also grateful that my parents were supportive because I, I remember very vividly calling them one day and from, from school and being like, I think I want to change my major. And I was like afraid that they were going to be upset with me. And my mother was incredibly supportive. She's a big fan of the arts. And I, honestly, if it were up to her, I think she would have started me in theater classes when I was like five, but it just wasn't my thing. My dad was confused, but was like, as long as I'm in school and I'm studying journalism, like that's a real thing. He was like, all right, so just stay in school and finish school. And then when I went to, I think it was not until I like got into grad school that he was like, oh, maybe he's like good. You know, maybe he's like serious <laughs> about this, you know? Um, I mean, did your dad think that maybe it was just a lark or you were going through like a finding yourself phase? You know, I think it's like anything or I mean, I've never had kids before, but like, you know, there's so many people like I want to be an actor and it's like, cool, but like, it sucks. <laughs> right. Like, you, it takes a long time to, before cool things happen, if things happen, you know what I mean? And it's not it's, a stable career. No. And you, I even myself in doing this career, like I, I'm a comedian. I didn't set out to be a standup. That was six years ago that I started doing standup after I got into acting and I'm grateful for even that because sometimes as an actor, you feel like you have no power because you're waiting on the right role or you're waiting on someone to cast you or you like, but when, I don't know, becoming a comedian flipped a switch for me and I started writing my own stuff for the stage. And then you start like, wow, if I can make somebody laugh or something that I come out of my mouth, I can make videos, I can make pod, like, I, and it's, I'm using the skills I've got as like a storyteller from grad school. So I don't know. It's just like, it's hard and you got to like keep reinventing yourself and coming up with new things and the pandemic right now is an excellent example of it no one can perform live so we're all trying to figure it out right right so the switch from theater to comedy like when it sounds like such a dumb question like when did you realize you were funny that's, um, a, that's a that's a very good question Mike. Honestly. <laughs> no it's really true sorry did you was there more to that yeah question? no when did you realize you were funny I did not think I was that funny for a very long time. And when I was in acting school, I often avoided doing comedic scenes because I didn't think I was very good at them. If anything, I would occasionally play like the straight man, but I wasn't even, I didn't think I was great at that. Uh, I had some really, really funny people in my acting class. There was three people in particular that I just admired because they really knew humor. And I think it was a few years after grad school and I had not booked anything in a long time and I was feeling really sorry for myself and I was a dog walker and I had gone through a breakup and I really wasn't doing things that I wanted to be doing. And I was really into comedy and I watched a lot of comedy. And at one point I was at a party and I was making this guy laugh and he was making me laugh and he's like, oh, I'm a comedian. He's like, are you a comic? And I was like, no. He's like, you want to go to an open mic next Saturday? And I was like, Sure, sure, yeah, this is fun. We could, I, I could do more of this. And I really freaked me out, but like I wrote stuff and I have to tell you the story. Yeah, I wrote stuff and I, I went to this open mic at Under St. Mark's. I don't know if you've ever been to that venue. Um, I know what you're like, talking about. I, I have not been inside. It's a wonderful place. So New York-y. And I did an open mic there. I had all the confidence and very little of the jokes and it was fine. I think I maybe got like one or two laughs on certain things. I didn't bomb, but I, like the jokes weren't that great. I thought they were great. And I'll never forget afterwards, I was talking to my comedian friend outside and this woman came up to me, another comic, and like laid into me because I had a joke 
where the punchline was uh, stabbing my ex-girlfriend. Now, I don't even make those kind of jokes now. Like, I don't, I'm not that kind of comic, but that was just what I wrote. And it was a bad joke. It was, I like, who cares? But she's like, how dare you write a joke where the punchline is you murdering a woman? Blah, 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 blah. And then the guy, my friend, like, let her, like, she just laid, I didn't know what to say. I was kind of stunned. I didn't think anyone really gave a shit. And then uh, she, the guy, my friend was like, this is his first time. Like, appreciate it, but like, just go easy on him. This is his first time. And she was like, really? You've never done comedy before? And I was like, yes. Yeah, this, this is my first time doing it. She's like, okay, okay. And then, <laughs> like, I'm going to watch you. But it's very strange. But yeah, I, I didn't know that I was funny. And it wasn't until, you know, starting out doing comedy and, and, and doing a couple little sketches with some friends. I was like, oh, and I got a little confidence in myself. I was like, maybe I can be funny. So I did not always think I was funny. Interesting. Like I, again, like this is an interesting like story arc because a lot, I mean, I've interviewed other comedians and also just people who are creatives and like, it feels like your, like your path to discovery was a little later yeah, than totally. a lot of the others, which is, you know, which is kind of cool because, you know, it puts like a different, it, it makes clearly makes your story different than the others, but also puts like a different light on your development. So you get into a habit of, of doing shows. Did you, first of all, did you ever run into this woman again? No, I don't even remember her name. I don't remember. I would love to run into her again, honestly, <laughs> just to see who she is. Right. Um, but you do make a good point. Like a lot of comics that do comedy in New York that are not from New York, they started comedy somewhere else you know what right. i mean and then they got to new york and they're like oh shit whereas like i started here which honestly i think it's a wonderful place to start doing comedy because you get to see all of the best and all of the worst and there's so much of it yeah so i do feel like i started late in that sense i mean i didn't start doing comedy until i was like 25 so right. yeah so how do you fine-tune your craft like what is the you know if you're a singer you take vocal classes. If you're an actor, you take acting classes. Are there, cla they're not classes on how to be funny. There are? <laughs> well, there's stand-up comedy classes. And there are? There's things. Oh yeah, there really are. Yeah, especially like, I feel like in the last, you know, eight years, people have, like comedy's booming. And so, so many people want to learn. But there's stand-up comedy classes. Some are better than others. And some teachers are better than others. You know, there's, there's things to learn about comedy. Like, it's not like an innate thing that's just in you. There's, there's skills to learn and things to be had. But also just some people are not really cut out for it. But your question was, how do you hone it? How do you work on it? Just do it, honestly. Just do it. Like, yeah, getting on stage and doing it as much as you can, as opposed to, like, sitting in your room. I mean, obviously, you have to take time to write stuff. But, like, go out and don't get too precious with it go out and do it. It seems to me with stand-up, it's like one of the few art forms where you only just get better by just doing it as much as you can. Whereas like others, like basketball, you might go practice and then go play a game. Whereas stand-up feels like you got to play as many games as possible. I don't know that. I think that would be my best. As a result, during the pandemic, I have not been practicing very much. <laughs> you know, like I, well, I did my, has. exactly. And I, I did my first live comedy show like two weeks ago in Prospect Park. And that was fun. And like, I wasn't awesome, but that's okay. Like, it's, it's not the end of the world. Uh, Someone well. laughed. Yeah, people laughed. People had a good time. You just got to do it, man. You just got to do it. There's no way around it. 
it's scary, but you just got to do it. That's what people ask when people ask me, like, how do I get good at comedy or should I do stand up comedy or what should I do before I start stand up comedy? Like, nothing, just go start it. You'll be terrible and then you work at it and then hopefully you won't be, you know? Right. One interesting question, I think, there, you could be a comedian in the 80s and 90s and be Sam Kinison or Eddie Murphy and say some funky shit and get over you can't do that in 2020 i don't think you can do that in 2020 anyway unless you're dave Chappelle. he's like the 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 exception <laughs> why do you say you can't do that because because there is i feel like there is such a pressure on people to be politically correct mm. you know and eddie murphy I mean, I still listen to Delirious or watch Raw, and there's some stuff he says in there that I find offensive. Sure. But I still kind of find it funny. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and I feel like, I don't know, even I feel compromised in a way because if he's talking about, like, you know, he's talking about faggots and AIDS and shit like that, and I'm like, I am a, I am a queer identified person, I shouldn't find this funny. But I still find it funny. And I don't think it comes from a place of, what's the word I'm looking for? A place of malice necessarily. I think it comes from ignorance and the fact that it was 1983. Sure. If he was making those jokes now, we'd have a problem. Sure. But how do you, I guess what I'm trying to say is how do you work your material to sort of make sure that what you're communicating is communicated in a way that feels honest to you? And also, do you really worry about offending people, I guess? Well, I'll say this first. I personally don't think that there's anything off limits that a comedian can say on stage. I don't think so. It's comedy. It's in basements in dark places with adults and alcohol. This is not for kids. This is not story time. This is sometimes it's not you're not going to like everything you're going to hear. That's comedy. And as far as I think you should be able one can make a joke about anything they want. Now, whether you will make it funny, that's up to you. So sure. like when people say like, oh, you shouldn't be able to say a rape joke. Hey, say your rape joke. I'm just going to tell you, it's going to be a lot harder to make people laugh with that rape joke than a joke about you being like messy. You know what I'm saying? Right. So go for it. If you want to do rape jokes, go for it. I'm just going to tell you it's hard. So that's why like people say like, oh, Dave Chappelle can say anything because he's a fucking genius and he's found ways to articulate things to us where it puts us at ease or we look at it differently or whatever. But so that's why it's like, that's why you see shitty comedians making jokes about murdering women. I'll use myself as like when they're new because you know, you're fucking new, right? Like it's like when a teenager buys like music, they want to get stuff. It's like where people like Eminem or people talking about like cursing and raping and murdering people. And I used to listen to that shit, not because I wanted to be a rapist, but like you're a kid and you just reach for the things you're not supposed to have. You know? Right. right. Um, I try not to, I don't, I don't think I worry about whether I'm going to offend people when I write jokes. I don't know. I, I write, I talk a lot about race on stage. That's kind of, I would say my thing. I myself, for those listening that don't know me, my dad's Mexican, my mom's white. And I would say a, a good part of my childhood was spent sort of figuring out what I am and who I am and where I stand and where I belong and how confusing that was. And <clears throat> it wasn't traumatic. I, I didn't go through any trauma, but it was confusing. And I talk a lot about race on stage and I know that makes certain people uncomfortable and I don't care. And I, and I know there are certain things like, I'll say one thing. I talk about race and 
I usually don't tell people I'm Mexican until like a little bit later in my set because sometimes when people see my pale ass face talking about race, they get really uncomfortable, not because of what I'm saying, but because they feel like a white guy shouldn't be saying this. A straight white male shouldn't be saying this. Right. And then later on, they find out in the set that I'm Mexican. I've literally had people come up to me and be like, you know, at first I wasn't sure if you should be talking about that. But then you're like, Mexican, it's cool, man. You should say that you're Mexican at the beginning. I was like, no, <laughs> because right. it builds tension right. and it makes you uncomfortable. Right. And then it surprises you, you know, like, and that's what comedy is, is like you build tension and then you like release it. And that's not something I came up with. There's many other people smarter than me have talked about that. So I try not to worry. But I think any comedian that worries about whether they're going to offend people, it's, it's t you're going to really drive yourself bananas, right? Because you just can't worry too much. If you, Ultimately, you need to find it funny first before the rest of the world finds your joke funny. You know? right. Well, I feel like if you worry too much, you just sort of avoid stepping on anything that could be a potential landmine. So your material just ends up being very square. And sure. Yeah. Sure. Also, audiences are weird. Every audience is different. <laughs> And you have no idea what's going to happen. And you could be on your A game and do your best jokes and you could bomb. And it's just like, you just never know. To be honest, I, when I'm in the Bay Area, sometimes I do shows in the Bay Area and my race material does not do well. People get, I have to say, people get really uptight out there. <laughs> I'm just going to fucking really? say it. They really do. When I go back to the Bay and do shows at certain places, especially places that are not in San Francisco, outside of San Francisco, man, people get real tight and nervous and... Man, I can really get people laughing uh, in New York talking about race. But man, when I go to the Bay Area, it gets, it's tough. <laughs> they, I don't like, I don't feel like I kill when I go to the Bay Area. I'll tell you that. But it's interesting. I mean, maybe uh, it's more just like you now have a New York perspective as opposed to. Yeah, maybe. I don't even talk about New York on stage, honestly. I try to avoid it because that's not really useful outside of the city you know what sure, i mean sure but yeah i don't know what it is but people in new york tend to like me better maybe i've been i don't know i'm also i've only been doing this six years so what do i know but well, six years is you know enough time for somebody to get a degree in something so sure sure <laughs> <laughs> so segueing into the race part which is something that i find interesting because like first first time i saw you i was like this guy is not white <laughs> but I'm not sure exactly, you know, uh, what ethnicity is. And then it occurred to me after a while, you know, your last name is Mancius, And that for those of us who are either part of the Latinx community as I am, or know a lot of Spanish people, that was a, a tell. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, but a lot of people, I mean, you are probably able to quote unquote pass. Mm-hmm in a lot of situations. And, and I mean, that's sort of a big overarching, what is that like? Um, well, it's definitely a privilege, right? Right. I have the privilege of presenting as a probably straight white male, right. <laughs> you know? Right. And I mean, particularly in the comedy world, because, you know, and this is, I guess, my bad. When I think of uh community or comedians that are of latin extraction it's like okay george lopez <laughs> carlos mencia and paul rodriguez and then i kind of draw blank sure so i, I you're not i mean again to most people you're sort of just a, a white comedian but do you feel any you know 
like uh, pressure of like representation or you know anything like that based on you know based on your ethnic makeup? I would say when I was in high school, I used to feel like I wasn't brown enough and I wasn't white enough. And high school, middle school it was just like. I just felt like I was in very in-betweeny place and I didn't fit in anywhere. I felt like sometimes with my Mexican-American like classmates, some of them were kind of like, mm, about me, because like I wasn't Mexican enough for them, whatever that means to them. And there were a lot, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area, so like a lot of my friends were not white. But with the few white friends that I had or people that were, I don't know, I just, I didn't like it's so weird i went to this all boys prep school which was very prestigious and we had it felt like prison in a sense that <laughs> mind you i've never been to prison so i don't know shit but it felt like prison in that there were all these clubs on campus and every single one was for like an ethnic group there was the filipino student association the mex uh, the latin student union the irish club the italian club the black student union I don't know if there were, there might've been enough, but those are the ones that come to mind. And so everyone kind of went to their spot. And I remember like going to like a club meeting for like the Latino student union. And it was just like very not welcoming to me. And I was like, scratched. And I was like, Oh fuck. Um, and it's tough, man, because like my dad told me about racism that he dealt with growing up. And like, so he didn't want to give me a brown name, but at the same time, like, I, like I want to learn about my culture. My dad doesn't speak Spanish because like, Oh wow! When he was when he was in school, his teachers told him, "You should not be speaking Spanish at home. You should be speaking English. This is America." And his mother, my grandmother, didn't go to school, so she's like, "Okay, you should listen to your teachers. They're smart. They're just trying to do right by you." So like, I'm I've always been in, like, so I had to learn Spanish on my own, like not even from my father, and I speak it better than him, even though we've been to Mexico and and he's brown and people talk to him and I have to do all the conversating, you know? So I'm not sure if I answer you. I don't feel any pressure now as a comedian and who I am. I feel comfortable in who I am as a Latino and my experience with it and expressing it. And obviously we're not a monolith just like any other ethnic group. But when I was young, there was just a lot of confusion and a lot of insecurity, you know, so many just moments in my, like, I remember my father, we'd go to parties with like a lot of white people and they'd ask him about his name and he would say it's Spanish and not Mexican. And that always like, I still remember, and we've never talked about that, but I know that's intentional. You know, my dad probably had to deal way more racist shit than I ever did, you know? And the Bay area was a lot more white when he was in school than when I, you know, like, I think he had like two Mexican classmates and like now, like, most of my classmates are like Asian and Latino growing up like when I was in school. So I feel better with who I am now, but a, a lot growing up was very confusing. Sure. Know? Sure. You know, it's interesting that, you know, when we first started talking about race, you did mention privilege and I mean, I don't know. I, I it's funny because this has been on my mind lately that each of us has to recognize uh, the privilege that we do have, even when we're minorities, you know, that, each of us, most of us have a certain level of privilege. You know, mine comes from being a guy and also comes from being more or less a straight passing guy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, you know, there's an, uh, uh, an element of your privilege that comes from being white passing. And that's got to be like a weird, I mean, I guess I should know, a weird place to be in mentally where people assume that you're something that you're not. Yeah. You know, have you ever, have you thought a lot about that or, you know? Oh, there's plenty of times where 
gosh, I used to go to this laundromat when I lived further uptown and it was run by mostly Central American women and they all speak Spanish in there. And I wouldn't say anything to them. I was just doing my laundry. But one time they were like talking about me in Spanish and they, they thought I was Asian. <laughs> and there was like this homeless guy that was bothering me. And they were like, oh, look at this Asian kid, like dealing with the homeless guy, blah, blah, blah. And I like looked at them and they were like in Spanish. They're like, oh, it's like he can understand us. And I was like, yeah, I can hear you. And <laughs> so yes, it happens quite a bit where people assume things about me and they, you know, it happens. It's lots of mistaken identity that happens with me. So I don't get the Asian thing. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I remember when I auditioned for grad school. Oh, this is so funny. Uh, when I auditioned for grad school, for acting school, I had to do some monologues. And then there was like a line of professors sitting at a table asking me a few questions. And they're very nice. But one of the questions was, ah, I love this so much. One of the questions was, they're like, so, uh, Mansi, Mansi, Man. Basically, they're trying to say my name, but they wanted me to say it. And they're like, so, Mansi. And they just like gesturing to me, like, Mansius. And they're like, okay, so, and that's... And it's like, is that's that a question? My last name. That's your question? Like, <laughs> and, I, and I knew what they were asking. And I was like, that's Mexican. And immediately, all the professors, were like, oh, 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 oh. Like, there was this thing that's like, oh, it's exotic. It's exciting. He's, he's, he's ethnic. Not just, he's not just white. Yeah. yeah. It's just so funny. <laughs> and it's amazing how many times, like, white people do that thing of like, so you're, like, just, if you want to know my ethnicity, ask me. Right. Just come straight out. Yeah. Where are you from? Yeah, I don't know why people, I think, yeah, because that's, well, that's the thing. Sometimes people ask where you're from, and I'll say California, knowing right. full well what they want. Right. But you got, just ask me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of, you said you're Latinx. What ethnicity are you, Mike? Uh, I am, so my family comes from the Caribbean, but oh. both of my maternal grandparents were born uh, in the Dominican Republic. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So you have a lot of family out there? I still have some family out there. I haven't been there since I was a little kid. Oh, man, you're uh, overdue for a trip. Yeah, I mean, most of my folks have been out there within like the last five years, but I have not been back to Santo Domingo since I was probably like seven. Oh, wow, cool. Yeah, I've never been. So, yeah. And I don't, I mean, when you're, you don't remember shit from when you're seven. <laughs> sure, so, sure, sure. But, you know, every place kind of looks the same. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, hopefully once we're able to travel again, yeah, I'll be able sure. to to add that to my list. But yeah, I mean, that's another thing. People look at me and, and you know, they're like, okay, black guy. But, you know, I am the first American-born member of my entire family. Wow. So I come from a family of immigrants. And I have, you know, you know, I can also check the, you know, Latin Hispanic box, you know, on a, on a census form or whatever. So, sure. you know, looks can, you don't always know the whole story. Of course. <laughs> so... So you do other things besides comedy, because, I mean, the way that I connected with you was in a way that wasn't directly related to comedy. Yeah, and radio. Yeah, I work, I work part-time at SiriusXM, uh, and then I, I, you know, I'm an actor, so I, I audition for stuff, and I'm a comedian, I do a podcast, and most recently, like, I, I was a host of a game show, like a mobile app game show, for those of you that aren't familiar, it was called Song Pop Live, and it was a mobile app game show where people tuned in all over the world and they would try and win money by sort of like name that tune. We'd play music and they'd guess what it was. That was really cool. I had never hosted a game show before. And honestly, that was one of the most fun things I've been able to be a part of, honestly. So how yeah. They, I, how they find uh, you? I auditioned. I auditioned. Oh, okay. I had an audition and 
I was, I'm not sure if you're f- familiar with HQ, HQ Trivia, but yeah. that's another mobile app game show. Yeah. I loved it. There's some very funny comedians that host it that I'm a big fan of, including Anna Roisman and Matt Richards. They're fantastic. So I sort of got it. And so when I went into the audition, they were basically just like, okay, so here's like some copy that you're going to read. And then we need you to just like fill for like two minutes here, two minutes here, two minutes here, and just say whatever you want. But like, you've got to do it to camera. Like it's just, like it's a show. And I think a lot of people that auditioned didn't understand what it was. And so I think that's what the advantage, like I was like, oh, I get it. I understand this. And being that I worked in radio, like I have the skill to like, and that I do comedy, like I know what a minute feels like in my head. And I have the skills to be able to talk and not curse and like do this thing. So I think I honestly had like a really great audition. <laughs> and then they brought me in for a call back at their office. And it was basically like, we're going to have you do like a mock show. And I was like, great. And they're like, but you're going to have to fill for two minutes in each of these chunks. Do you want like a stopwatch or a timer? Like, how do you want to do that? And I'm pretty sure what helped me, I was like, I don't need that. I know how long it'll be. And they're like, are you sure? I'm like, can I go over? Like if it was 210 or 220, is that fine? They're like, fine. It just can't be less. I'm like, that's easy. Okay. (laughs) So I think I just knocked it out of the park, but I'll be totally honest with you. There's three hosts. I think I was like, the the risk choice <laughs> really because i had no experience doing this i just performed really well so i, I really feel like because the other two hosts had some tv experience hosting and doing things like that and i had never done that so i think they were taking a little bit of a chance on me and you seemed out of the three hosts like the loosest oh that's kind of you so Thank you. you know but yeah i mean that's uh you have I'm wondering how do you get the you've got the radio voice you've got the good voiceover voice you've got the good hosting voice like is did you have to grow into that or have you always just been like a you know someone who can fill space with talking and who has just like the tone that sounds really good over a microphone the voice is just me I don't know I'm not doing anything I don't do anything this is just me I've I'm you know I I was not a performer I, I never was this kind of kid this kind of person it's sort of like once I started performing in college, I started getting more confidence being on mic and being in front of people. And it, I don't know, it's just something that sort of developed over time. I mean, when I finished grad school, I got an agent, very grateful, and I had a voiceover audition. And I remember that very, very first voiceover audition in a studio. And I was like sweating and I was nervous. <laughs> and this was at my agent's office. There's like nothing to lose here. But I was just so nervous. I remember putting those headphones on and being in front of this big fancy mic. And I was trying to wipe the sweat off my jeans and our big intimidating sound engineer was like, could you please stop doing that? We can hear it. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh, I'm so sorry. It was terrifying. And then it, just doing a bunch of voiceover auditions or going to them and seeing other people do it. Did I like get better at it and get less nervous? But I've never taken any classes. <laughs> okay. No uh, voiceover classes. No, but I wouldn't mind taking one. But yeah, this is just me. And on, honestly, working in radio, I've been able to like learn a lot from just seeing other professionals. And uh, I think that's just really helped me. And so again, with like the game show, it was just right place at the right time where all my skills had come. Because if I got that audition like three years ago, I don't think I would have nailed it. Right. And how do you, like, you know, one thing this show, I think, one question that I think I really try to get answered on this show is how, how do you become comfortable just being you in 
whether professionally or personally, like how do you figure out a way to kind of like fit in your, you know, fit in your own shoes and not have an effect towards anybody or, you know, just be your whole self regardless of, of the situation that you're in. It's hard, man. <laughs> it is. I mean, I yes, you're absolutely right, Blaze. It is. <laughs> right? It's supposed to be easy to be yourself, but it, it can be hard. You know, I think the one thing that gets in the way of me being my most true self, at least career-wise, is comparing. I think it's such a dangerous thing to constantly be comparing yourself or your work to other people. And when I first... You know, when, when I'm in acting school, our last year of acting school, everyone's getting agents and things like that. And there's a lot of comparing going on, maybe not even intentionally, but you're like, oh, who got what agent? Who got what manager? Who? And it's like you feel like you leave grad school with like a ranking, like, oh, I got an agent and a manager. I'm doing good. So-and-so didn't get anything. You know, it's just like – and there are periods where I wasn't booking stuff and – it's you go to a really dark place, a really resentful place when you compare yourself because you think uh, no one wants to give me a chance and everyone's doing things without me and no one wants to include me. And you just make up these fantasies in your head that like that everything sucks and everyone's against you. And that's not something that for me has just gone away. There are ebbs and flows of it. I've gotten better at like managing it and identifying it, but even so, I would love to go back to therapy. <laughs> so I would say that for me, that's like one of the toughest things is like comparing. And I think what's hard too is like, you know, you start seeing people doing other things and you're like, should I do that? Should I do this? And if someone has a podcast, I should go make one now. And it's like, but I don't have a full like idea. And like, what if I'm not, like everyone has these ideas. My ideas aren't so good right now. You know, sometimes you can't be doing the same shit as everybody else. And you just have to, you know, like, yeah, it's, I, I would say with this on a work thing, it's just like, I see someone doing that. I'm not doing that. Should I be doing that? You know? Yeah, that's I, what, I, I get yeah. that. I mean, it could be as simple as like, okay, I know this person from wherever and they've got more Twitter followers than I do. Like, what am I doing wrong? It's very easy as a, a creative to fall into self-doubt when you compare yourself to other people. Yeah. Or you're like, oh, that comic gets passed at that club. I don't even think they're funny. Like, fuck that person. They're not funny at all. Right. And then I'm like, but that doesn't affect me, you know? And gosh, there's places where I'm like desperate to get past and I've auditioned like three times to get past that club and they never pass me and they pass other people. But then I think, and I like, wait a second, Blaze. All the comics that you really love and admire, they don't perform at that club. So like, why are you trying? And also that club is owned by one person. So that's one person's opinion. And you don't even like the other comics there. So what are you doing? Right. Like, why are you trying to impress some person that you ultimately don't <laughs> give a shit about? You know, you don't give a shit about it. You know, just so you could tell people I'm past there. Who cares? Like, ultimately, you still got to go home and sit in your bed by yourself or whatever, you know? Right. Um, I don't even know what that means. But. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I know what you mean, even though I can't articulate it right now, but I get, it rolled well with what you were saying. So yeah, yeah, it's just you can't be you can't look to others for that affirmation all the time. You got to find it in yourself. And it's not easy. I'm, I'll be totally honest. It's not easy for me. And there are days I get really down on myself, especially during this pandemic. 
it's the worst thing in the world for all of us. And I'm grateful for my health and the health of my loved ones. But man, there's days where you're just stuck at home. You can't do anything. I didn't move to New York to be at home all day. If I want to do that, I go stay in the Bay Area or I move to Cleveland or something. No offense. <laughs> disrespect to Cleveland. Yeah. No offense to Cleveland. I've never been there. I'm sure they're fine. But I've like, been there a few times. I, you're, you're on target. Sure, but like, but the like, it's just you know, everyone's dealing with shit. And when you come to New York and you're in the arts and you're always around people, and I love being around people so much that like it sucks. It's it sucks, and yeah, oh yeah. You want to see your friends? You want to go out and do stuff and dance and drink and see movies and create stuff? And yeah, it's kind of hard to you know, New York is where everybody is on top of everybody and we're in a stage right now where you can't be on top of anybody. So it's just, yeah. it's a very awkward situation. It's also interesting, like, cause I've been starting to, you know, venture outside and see people in certain things. The thing that I've sort of like realized is like, it's, it's hard to meet new people right now because we're staying within our circles. We're protecting, we're not going out like to too many new places or sometimes you meet new people and you got this thing over your face. Right. And so it's like hard to tell who someone is. So I think that's also like an interesting thing that like, I felt like I would meet new people all the time when I was doing comedy before the pandemic. And now I feel like I meet less new people. I mostly see the same people. And then occasionally I meet a new person. And that's just like a weird human thing that I think probably a lot of us are dealing with. Yeah. I mean, the psychological effects of all of this stuff, I think five years from now, 10 years from now, like there's just going to be some acknowledgement that there is one particular thing or two particular things that have affected everybody who has gone through this experience. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not really sure what that is yet, but I, I would have to imagine it's going to be related to social distancing and, you know, not being able to interact with other people in a sort of three-dimensional person-to-person way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's talk about the podcast, which is something that you have started in the midst oh, sure, of, yeah. of, of the pandemic. Uh, so, so tell us why you decided to start a podcast and, and what it's all about. Yeah, this is some of my second venture at a podcast. I did one years ago called oh. Social Abstinence with Blaze Mancias, where I would abstain from social media and I'd have guests on and we'd sort of like see how in touch I was with the world or not in touch. That was sort of a fun thing. But my new podcast... Uh, is called Let's Get Lit with Blaze Mancius. And basically, I read a chapter from H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds every episode. And every episode, I have a different comedian come on, and they provide their jokes, their commentary, their insights, their questions, whatever they feel like. It can be cursing. It could be not. It doesn't even have to be relevant. But the sort of the feel is is like it's like you're reading this book that maybe you didn't read when you were a kid or you were supposed to because it's 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 a – H.G. Wells wrote The War of the Worlds. It's very accessible to this day, and it's one of the most commented on pieces of sci-fi literature ever. So it's worth checking out the book. It's also problematic at times, but the experiences is something like Mystery Science Theater 3000 or Drunk History. You know, you're doing this story, but in the meantime, you have somebody with you who's a very funny, trying to like punching it up a little bit, you know? So that's the idea of the podcast. It comes out every week, and... We have two episodes out right now. There'll be a total of 27 episodes because there's 27 chapters. So if you want to feel smart, like you're reading a book, <laughs> but you don't want to like do the work of reading, this is a great way to do that. And um, there's commentary as opposed to like an audio book where you're just, you're being lazy 
Yeah. But you're just hearing the, the author or someone hired by the author or the publishing companies read the book to you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've been developing this idea for a while. I would say the podcast specifically, I started working on this winter and then the pandemic hit and I was sort of like, what do I do? And I'm like, okay, this is the time to do it. And honestly, I was trying to decide between several different books, but War of the Worlds is the one that I settled on because I felt it most was like what we're dealing with today. So yeah, I've been developing it for a long time and it's just been really fun to share it with people. I've gotten some really awesome comedians that are coming on. Um, yeah, I saw your first episode, I think, had Judah Friedlander on it. Yeah, had Judah Friedlander on it, who's great, really smart guy. It's it's a really fun story. I I, I would just say also, for those that are not into sci-fi, I am not a sci-fi fan I, That was going to be my next question. Yeah, I'm not a sci-fi fan, but I just, I read the, I was reading so many different books to decide, and this was just the one that I was like, it's a good story. It, the, the writing isn't too inaccessible. And it's just so timeless because it's, it's fear and it's others, right? You know, and that's, and that's, yeah. And there's a lot of that going on right now. And honestly, I really love the parts where we, in the book where the book is problematic <laughs> because it's written by an old white guy who's right. British. And, you know, a lot of times I'm realizing like, these books that we didn't read as kids, it's because it's not about people that look like us, you right. know, whether it's women or whether it's people of color or, or people uh, that are of the LGBTQ community. So like, I don't blame people for being like repelled by it, you know? So when, when you hear things like the word Oriental being thrown in the book and like, to describe people from Asia, you're like, what is going on? But like, that's okay. Like, here's our chance to get like the last word, you know? Right. Um, I mean, it's so also... I, you know, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, oh, please, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. It's also a sign of the times. I mean, I'm a little older than you, and I can somewhat remember, like, the shift from Oriental to Asian. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, War of the Worlds, I don't know when that book was, was published. 1898. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, okay. it's old. So, yeah, a lot of time has passed. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You know, some things you just have to take in the context in which they were, you know, some things regarding art you have to take into the context in which they were created. Um, totally. And, but, and the thing is with H.G. Wells is he wasn't like, as far as I know, it didn't seem like he was a straight up like racist or anything like that. If anything, he was trying his best to be a little woke um, because there's chapters like, I think even in the first chapter of the book, he talks about how aliens, if they came to Earth and took over, how could we judge them when the British went to all these other countries and took over? Now, he described some of these countries and places of being like lesser people, which is not cool. But he makes an excellent point that like there's no difference in aliens coming to this planet and enslaving us because the white people, the, the British Empire did that all over the world. It is interesting to see that like, okay, he's, there's like you know, some self-awareness here. But still, it's, it, I think there's like three women that talk in the whole book and only one of them, actually, his wife doesn't even have a name. Like the book doesn't pass the Bechdel test. And it's, Damn. It's, it's, it's mostly men talking throughout, you know what I mean? Yeah, but it's, I think it's, it's a book that's revis worth revisiting. It's not at all, it doesn't feel like tired or irrelevant. And I, I think it's fun to kind of see, uh, we can like, because when you're in high school and you're a kid, you can't be like, this shit's racist, this shit's stupid. Maybe kids do that now. Now, yes. But when I was in school, like, 
these were like books and titles to behold and you would never criticize it. Yep. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I take that back. It seems like kids speak up a lot more now and it's I think that's really fucking cool. They know more stuff now. They do. You know, I I, I talk to people all the time and people like the internet sucks and I'm like, yes, but if not for the internet, if not for social media, there's so much that we would not know or that we would not be aware of. And I think one great thing about social media is that it has made a lot of people that would feel completely alone in their otherness, like sort of band together and develop community and, you know, us, you know, non, either non-white, non-straight, non-male, or all three, you know, have realized that our voice is larger than the voice that we've been told has been the predominant voice for, you know, our entire lives. Yeah, you're getting a voice. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So what else is Blaze doing in, in the <laughs> pandemic? Oh, man. Trying to see my girlfriend as much as possible. I have to tell you, my girlfriend lives in, in Brownsville, Brooklyn. I live in Upper West Side. So for those of you that are not from New York, that's a pretty hefty distance on the subway. It's that's like a between states like, for some people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's at least an hour on the subway. I got to ask, why do you live on the Upper West Side? Well, I, when I moved here for, to go to Columbia, that's uptown on the west side. I used to live on 106th Street for five years, which I loved. I love that area, uh, West 106th Street. And then my apartment got bought by somebody and I had to move. I, I was just renting. And so I, I had to scramble and find like a place. And so I found this place on 74th Street, which is like a really great location. It's a much smaller apartment. I'll tell you, the, the neighborhood's not really my vibe. I'm not, I don't have like a baby or a wife, so I don't fit in. But there's parks and there's things like that. But it's also just easy to get around the city. I'm more of a downtown guy. But yeah, the, man, the pandemic was really tough because I, I, you know, I have a girlfriend that I love very much. And her mother is an essential worker and worked in a hospital. And my girlfriend was working from home. She's a teacher. And there was a few months we didn't see each other. And Aww. because everything was so scary. And, I, and she lives with her whole family, like her siblings and her parents. And you know, and I'm here in the city and I was just like, I don't like, there was so much we didn't know. Right. And I didn't, I was afraid to go see her. And so like, it, I have to say, man, it was really, it felt like a long distance relationship, which I've done before, but it was like the worst kind of long distance relationship where you're like, I don't know when this is going to end. Right. And maybe we might die. Like if we see each other right. and that was really tough on our relationship. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it was tough. It was I tough bet. for me. It was tough for me. So now that things have opened up more, and unfortunately, she has to teach in person, which isn't ideal. Oh, that's um, crappy. Yeah, but we see each other a lot more. Gosh, what, so what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> Man. Aside no, from I'm, your podcast and trying to spend time with your partner. That's, I mean, that's kind of it, really. <laughs> I'm auditioning for things a lot and a little bit, bit more. I'm doing live comedy shows in the city all over. I would say the podcast is sort of like my main thing and to give a little i can't really say anything but the podcast is not the is not it there's like more to it but i but i can't talk about that right now so like there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that i've been like working on doing and my day job has not given me the option to uh work from home 
and they've given the option to all the full-time employees with healthcare and salaries. But for hourly part-time people like myself, they've not extended that offer. So I'm not making much money, but what a bummer that, you know, I'll say it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fucking bummer. It's a bummer. It's a bummer, Sirius XM. It's a bummer that it's just such a bummer, man. Like, and I'm, a privileged person and I, you know, working in radio is not dangerous as it is as other professions, but man, it's been tough for me because all the full-time employees have the ability to work from home and that has not been extended to me and I keep asking for it and it doesn't get extended to me. And, and it's frustrating. And I, all they say is, well, you could come in if you want. I don't want to come in. Right. You <laughs> I get paid- on the subway every day and not for hourly and not for no healthcare. I don't get right. anything from you guys, Sirius XM. So I'm frustrated about that. So hopefully HR gets back to me soon. I don't just yell on radio shows about my job. I talk to HR, so hopefully. (laughs) Sirius XM, get your shit together. Please. All I want to do is work. (laughs) I'm asking to work. I don't know why. Is this this like uncouth? I really No, I don't care. (laughs) Okay, okay, great. I agree with you. You should have health insurance. Yeah, if they gave me health insurance and and better pay, I would consider going in. But because they don't offer me that and they offer all my coworkers the ability to do so, come on, I'm not going to do that. I don't know. I hear you. Yeah. Um, So that's what I've been up to. Oh, and I'm an avid bird watcher. I like like checking out birds. So are you you a for real bird watcher? Yeah. Have I missed this following you on Instagram? You must have because I think I talk about it quite a bit. I got my binoculars <laughs> right here. I just thought maybe I was just like Blaze's kidding. Oh, no. <laughs> I've recently got in. Here's the cool thing about social media. During the pandemic, I was sort of like a casual bird fan early on. And you spend a lot of time on Twitter, as you do. And I somehow stumbled upon this handle called Manhattan Bird Alert, where basically they tweet about any sort of cool bird sightings. And if birders <laughs> tweet like cool videos and pictures, they repost it. And it was really cool. And there was a couple times during the pandemic where there's been like exciting bird news. Like at one point in the lake in Central Park, there was this, it's okay, you can laugh. <laughs> there's this bird in Central Park that had a plastic ring stuck in its mouth. And oh. it was like, it like couldn't eat or anything. And so they were, there was like a all points bulletin. Like if anybody can go to the park and spot it, the rangers would appreciate that because they're trying to help this bird. Sure. So like one day I went out there because I live very close to Central Park and more and more people are like, oh, there's this bird or there's some baby geese. And I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go check them out. It's not far from me. And I was like, you know what? I, I started talking to a couple birders and I was, they recommend I get some binoculars. They even let me use theirs. And I was like, you know what? I think... I think I'm gonna do it. So I've been like, I don't go like often, but every couple of weeks I go to a certain spot in Central Park in the Ramble and I sit and I go bird watching. I've taken my girlfriend once. She really enjoyed that. But yeah, I I love nature and the outdoors. And in New York City, you don't get a lot of that, no, obviously. No, 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 And I think it's sort of like bird watching in the city has sort of become my... I'm getting my nature fix for a little bit because I've never been like a bird watcher before. And I just love animals, but yeah, I love, and honestly, 
New York City is a great place for bird watchers because Central Park specifically is sort of like a stopping off point for migratory birds going north and south. I did not know this. Some people have told me. So Central Park actually gets a really wide variety of interesting birds throughout the year. And it's kind of special like that. They don't come to New York, but they like spend a day there. It's really interesting. <laughs> I had no they're idea. Like tourists. Exactly. They <laughs> pop in, they spend a few days, and they're like, all right, we got to get back to Maine. You yeah. Know? <laughs> You're the first person I think I've ever met in my life that ha actually like has acknowledged to me that they're a bird watcher. <laughs> I'm glad I could come out to you on your show right? as a bird watcher. And yeah. speaking of comedy and content and things like, you know, and coming up with your own thing, you know, people do all kinds of sketches and stuff like that. And if you go to like my Instagram or my YouTube, I wrote a sketch all about birds <laughs> like as sports highlights so and that's just a me thing because i like birds and i s did some bird watching i was like oh i think i have an idea yeah, so check that out yeah it's on my instagram but yeah it's like i don't know that's the cool thing about being a comedian you you choose what you find funny right and maybe maybe people are like i'm gonna do a thing about birds what like i found my way to make it funny you know yeah yeah <laughs> well that is a a, a an interesting revelation yeah. yeah if you ever want to go with me sometime mike if you're ever up here up in near upper west side if you want to go i'd be happy to take you to my bird watching spot it's really nice and relaxing and, and beautiful I mean, and pleasant I, I know the rambles very well for other reasons oh because back in the day the the ramble used to be a gay cruising spot i've heard uh, of that yes in my younger years you know and i used to work on i used to work on 74th and broadway oh there used Where? to be tower records there Really? Yep. So was it in? Sorry, go ahead. No, yeah. So there was a Tower Records on. It was initially on 66th and Broadway, like right by Lincoln Center, and then they moved for a couple of years into the Ansonia Hotel. Well, what used to be the Ansonia Hotel between 73rd and 74th, and we moved into the basement. And uh, yeah, so I think it was in that location for two or three years, and then moved back to 66th, and then ultimately closed. Mm. Um, yeah, the but, Ansonia uh, is very close to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's also very interesting about the pandemic, since we're talking about the gays, um, <laughs> because of the pandemic, I spend more time in my neighborhood, specifically like on my corner, which I wouldn't normally do. But like now, like I need some fresh air. I want to go out for a smoke. I'll go on my corner and have a smoke. And so I start to meet people that like, I'm, I'm getting to know my neighbors a bit more because okay. I see the same person at this time walk by and blah, blah, blah. And I always see this elderly white man at night moving garbage bags and things like that i thought he was a super and one night and also just so you know there's a bunch of like mexican delivery guys that hang out by my stoop i sort of like make them feel comfortable and talk to them in spanish because like i know they're tired they needed a day to like unwind and have a drink yeah yeah so i don't have an issue with issue with i know there are people that do but i try to make them feel as safe and comfortable as possible anyway I'm out having a smoke one night and this old white guy's coming by and I'm like, oh fuck, he's going to yell at those Mexican dudes. I could just feel the racism. And, and before he, he could, I could say anything, he's like, oh, don't worry about them. They're just, you know, they've had a long day. Cause I think he thought I was going to say something. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this guy's cool. I've gotten to know him. His name's Jimmy. He's been living in this, on that block for 52 years. He's gay. I've realized and he was living with somebody who may be his partner or maybe just his friend. They got out of the army together. They moved to 74th Street. They've been living in that apartment for 52 years. His friend or partner died only two years ago. Which oh, is that sucks. Bummer. Yeah. Um, 
but it was really interesting talking to Jimmy because he knows everything about this neighborhood, especially that block. And as a New Yorker, you know, there used to be block associations all over. Every yes. block had like a little community where they took care of their block. And he told me, he's like, you know, this neighborhood, especially this block, used to rent to a lot of gays, as he put it. He calls them gays because he's old, right? Yeah, of <laughs> uh, and he's like, and I was like, really? And I was like, why? He's like, we paid the rent. Like, and this is, this is 1960s and 70s New York. It's not a safe time in the Upper West Side. And he's like, we paid the rent, so they rented to us. And I was like, Jimmy, how many gay people lived on this block? Because it wasn't just men. It was men and, and women. And he's like, oh, every building had at least three, he said. And he's like, those block meetings were crazy. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> um, and he had so many stories. He's like, you know, in your building, the apartment above you, there used to be this photographer, this Italian guy. He worked for SI. This was in the late 60s, he said. And one time he invited me over and he took, he had these really expensive, like, cool men's, like, Speedos. And he's like, oh, I want to take photos of you, Jimmy in the speedos and jimmy was like absolutely and they and jimmy like was young and fit and looked good then they took photos and later they hooked up and the guy let him keep the swimming suits which apparently were very expensive and he's like wow he let me keep them too and i asked him i was like but he's like oh, i had one regret and i was like what was your regret he's like i never got the photos he's like i looked so good i never got those photos it's so interesting. I've like in and I tweet about it on Twitter and every time I run into him, he's he's sort of gotten comfortable. He loves telling me stories and I love hearing them. So sometimes I go on Twitter, I have a thread for Jimmy and all his like gay escapades and history of the block and I sort of add to that tweet. So like that's been like really cool. And honestly, one last thing since we're talking about I'm going to have to go back and and look at your your tweets. Yeah, please. And also I, I, so I live on 74th Street, around the corner from me used to be, people don't know this, used to be the oldest gay bar in New York City. You know, so you know, Candle Bar. I have been, I went after we would, so, I mean, this is so long ago, it doesn't matter anymore. We would take our lunch breaks from Tower at Candle Bar <laughs> and just have like a liquid lunch. Sure. And go back to work. I mean, I was, when I was working at Tower, I was like 19 years old. Oh, wow. Was and it this, still kind of like an old man gay bar back then? Oh, or it was that? very much an old okay. man gay bar. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, um, yeah. Yes. And uh, yeah, it was just you'd walk in and the drinks were cheap. Yep. You know, no one was going to find you in the bar. And, you know, you listen to like disco music from the 70s and, you know, hang out with the, you know, the old, the old gay guys wouldn't bother you unless they were hitting on you. Yeah. It felt um, like m- more of a chill spot than a cruise spot. Yes. Yeah. So it was, uh, yes, I, I know Candlebar very, very well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really sad because I think, yeah, people don't know that it's like the oldest gay bar in the city. It doesn't exist anymore. Unfortunately, it right. closed like three or four years ago and a frozen food store took its place, which is now ah, closed. Oh, yeah, wow. So, yeah, so like now, yeah, they, they took that storefront that was a beautiful bar with history and they put some corporate thing and then that corporate thing failed and now there's nothing there. Right. So like- Way to go, New York. Yeah. But it's interesting because I've talked to Jimmy about that. And he's like, yeah, there's a lot of older gay people in our neighborhood that kind of like don't have a place to, place to go. go anymore. Right. And he's like, you'll see them just kind of walking around, wandering around. And I think there's a few, I'm not sure if they're homeless or maybe they're just on some tough times, but there are some gay homeless people that I see in my neighborhood. And I'm like, oh, that must be like one of the people, like he doesn't have a spot to be at tonight anymore. Right. Um. And so I, I'm like, it's so fascinating that I'm like learning about this like 
history of like this gay history of like this culture of this block that I had no idea existed. It's really cool. And it feels like they're like invisible New Yorkers a little bit because right. and especially from what I hear in the gay community, you know, like you get older and you somehow become a little less relevant, you know? Right. Well, I Would mean, you say that's a, a, a fair characterization a little I think bit? So, I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I've had issues in the past because I don't really identify with the gay community, uh-huh. but the, the issue that one of the many issues that I have is that as you age, you kind of tend to be forgotten about by the quote unquote culture at large. And, you know, there may be specific subgroups, you know, for, you know, older folks, but, you know, they're certainly looked at differently in, in mixed spaces. Yeah. And it's also just the way society has been. I mean, if you're someone who came out in the sixties, your experience is going to be a lot different than someone who came out in the eighties and it's going to be a lot different than someone who came out 10 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, there's uh, some dissonance there. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been really interesting talking to him. And it's, it's rare that I talk to, you know, a gay or LGBTQ person that's that old. I mean, he must be in his late 70s or early 80s. Um, wow. And, oh, the other one last funny thing. He moves his trash and all these things every night. All right. He's not, he's not a super. He does it when people that like didn't properly tie up their garbage, he cleans it up for them out of the kindness of his heart. Even though there's no block association anymore, probably nobody in the neighborhood gives a shit. But I asked him, I was like, oh, so which building? He's like, oh, I'm not a super. I just do it because, you know, I know these buildings get fines and I want to clean it up. And I'm like, what an amazing fellow, right? Shout out to Jimmy. Yeah. Apparently he's doing well. Seriously, I was like, are you good, Jimmy? Like, do you need, cause he's kind of an old guy. I don't know, maybe he needs a hand. And he's like, no, I'm okay, thank you. Like, I'm good, I'm all right. I'm like, cool, Jimmy. Yeah, I love That's New, York. That's <laughs> New York. Cause you're only going to get stories and get people like that in New York City. Yeah. Only, yeah. only. I love, I love meeting people that have lived here for a very, very long time. You know, yeah. it's, it's the best. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, old New York, is a lot different you know it's just a lot different than it is now so i've got to say blaze is the first person i have ever met in my life that considers themselves a bird watcher and he is by far the youngest person that i have ever seen well i've never actually seen him watching birds but generally speaking the people that i have seen watching birds have been older and it's rare for me to hear a young person or a younger person talking about that. But shout out to Blaze and his bird watching. Once again, uh, you can find Blaze online in most social media places at Blaze Mancias. That is B-L-A-Z-E-M-A-N-C-I-L-L-A-S. He also has a website and that is blazecomedy.com. Usually at this point, I recommend a charity to donate to. I want to do something a little different. It's as we're recording this, it's closing in on the end of the year. I like to read and I prefer generally to read memoirs or biographies, but uh, I wanted to give you some of the books that I have enjoyed reading these last couple of months. Uh, first off, I want to recommend um, Chastin Buttigieg's memoir. Uh, it is called I Have Something to Tell You. It's great. Chastin is, of course, Mayor Pete's husband and uh, has a fantastic story. Before Pete even came into the picture, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, You want to read Lenny Kravitz's memoir, Let Love Rule. I think there's some great stuff in there about sort of the different worlds he lived in. 
in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn and then Upper West Side in Manhattan. Uh, so just kind of the whole uh, dichotomy being, you know, black and white and sort of uptown versus downtown, uh, funk and soul plus rock. Like it, it, it's just, it's a good book and it's co-written with David Ritz, who has written some of my favorite, favorite ever music biographies, including books about Marvin Gaye and Aretha Franklin. Uh, the Will to Change, Men, Masculinity, and Love. Not a new book, but a book I discovered recently by the fantastic Bell Hooks. It covers a lot of the terrain that I try to cover on this exact podcast. So I, I urge you to check that out. And maybe I'll give some more recommendations next episode. I just don't want to take up too much time recommending books but those three are all great they're sitting on my table right now and they're they're just fantastic reads i'm actually currently reading jeff tweedy from wilco's book about a quarter of the way through and it's also pretty interesting so there you go book recommendations by mike joseph and of course i'll remind you again to please subscribe rate leave a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast it is much appreciated and only helps our mission get out to more and more people and uh, make sure you follow me on social media i am on instagram at detox pod guy and i am on twitter at tis mike joseph if you have an idea for a theme or a guest or if you yourself want to be on the show you can reach me via either of those social media platforms or you can or you can email me at detoxpod at gmail.com once again i am mike joseph this is the detoxicity podcast I wish you continued safety and health for you and yours. Till next time. Peace, y'all.